This is the Two Spies Podcast, studying the Bible in a different way. What does the verse say? What is the topic being addressed? How does this affect me today? Go deeper in Scripture. Now the conversation begins with your hosts, David and Mark. Hey, hey. (laughs) Hey, hey, hey. (laughs) Welcome to Two Spies Podcast. We're going to look tonight at... uh, or whatever time it is you're watching this, or no, you're not watching. Whatever time you're listening to this, yes. we're going to look at Genesis six. Uh, this is probably the the chapter is going to split all of you and <laughs> make you never listen again to us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, there's going to be three or four different types of view, and we're going to kind of lay it out there and and share our share our thoughts and let people decide for themselves. Yeah. So uh, what I had talked to Mark was we would just uh, possibly just start out by we're probably going to end up covering only six, one through eight. So we'll just read that straight through first and then go back and uh, start comparing notes and uh, look and see what we come up with. You ready? Yep. Okay, Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters were born to them and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. I'm reading horribly tonight. <laughs> and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, and <laughs> the end. Well, we, the thanks end. for joining us today, and we hope you. <laughs> no. No. You got that good announcer's <laughs> closed voice, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well, but kind of before we begin, um, I sent David a, a video. Um, which dealt with the, kind of the topic uh, that we're going to be looking at with you the did? Nephilim in the Book of Enoch. You remember that video? <laughs> How long ago was this? A few days ago. Uh, yeah, yeah, I watched it. Oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, I to me, I think these verses are probably the most controversial in all of Scripture. I don't know if I'm going too far out there, but I I, I believe that uh, just because the fact of um, you have these three or four core views, and then it spreads out even further. For example, the video I sent David, it was these people talking about how the, um, the Nephilim, so to speak, um, are white people, and um, that's why a white person says, "Oh, look, I'm a little angel," and apparently the white people are a part of a fallen angelic group, and. You know, the guy talked about, that's why Paul said if an angel preaches another message, he's, why would he say angel and not another person? That's because it was against white people. So 
dealing with these verses that we're going to be dealing with, there's even racism within these verses, which I find interesting. So that's why I think this is probably the most controversial um, set of scriptures throughout the Bible, because one, there's no 100% proof fact of any of the views, but we're going to kind of look at all the views and um, let you judge and kind of present just different thoughts and, and evidence and see where that goes. Yeah, we Mark and I had talked about this a little while back and had done some research. And uh, either way, I was going to say first, we basically, uh, with this, Mark did a lot of the study from pulling out verses from uh, Enoch and some of the sections that are used commonly from the book of Enoch. So uh, I didn't, of course, go back over, you know, typing all those out. Right. I just went through them and read them again, et cetera. But they do explain, um, I think, probably the best for some coming issues that are in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, you know, I was talking to my wife this past week about it and just letting her uh, know what we're going to be talking about and everything. And, and, and some of the different views do not explain any reason at all for some things that are going to be happening in the, in the Old Testament later on. Right. And some of the views explain was perfectly logical why that happened. Yeah. Those are, well, that's my opinion, but that, that's something I lean more towards right and, there. And, you know, me looking through this Genesis chapter six and these verses one through eight, <clears throat> you know, there's, there's different commentaries, obviously of the thousands of commentaries and everyone has their opinion, um, which that's one thing is everyone shares their opinion and commentaries and, um, everyone has their facts. So like me and David, as we go through scripture, um, we are, we always have talked about scripture, interpret scripture, yeah. and you should never base your theology on another person's viewpoint or another person's theology. Um, basically you listen to people, you can, um, take to heart what they say, especially if you trust them, but really, you know, you need to go in the Bible and, and look for yourself because we believe as you look through the whole picture of the Bible, it will reveal truth. It's interwoven. As we talked about from the very beginning of our podcast, things are interwoven. God has patterns that um, go through the Bible. And so repeat, he's not going to, right. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, we'll kind of look, uh, kind of want to look at verses one through four as a, as a whole, <clears throat> uh, you know, how you see this, how you see chapter five, I think, is how you see the rest of chapter six. What I mean is, um, one view that I'll say, which I don't believe this view, but one view is that the Nephilim, people believe that the Nephilim are uh, following Genesis five from the lineage of Seth. The sons of God are from the lineage of Seth. <clears throat> um, I don't really agree with that view. I kind of think chapter six kind of cuts off uh, the lineage and starts its own thought about the earth and, and, you know, the continuation of what we've seen in four and five with the genealogies and, and the population of the earth. But, yeah. um, so how you see five, if, if you see it as a continuation, um, you might see it as the lineage, but I don't really see scripture revealing that, but I mean, well, that's what we said last week. That's why we went ahead and uh, grabbed some of the verses out of chapter 6 when we're talking about the end of chapter 5 to show that 
Noah and his family lived and everybody else died. Didn't matter if they were from Seth or from Cain, they all died because they were all sinners. Right. There was no delineation between them or, you know, distinction between them uh, that God was saying, okay, you guys are mine and you other guys over here, y'all are bad guys, so I'm killing yeah. all you. The only thing, the only thing was set. The only thing with Seth is he replaced Abel. They, he gave Adam and Eve had another son, and he was replaced. That's pretty much yeah. it. I mean, <clears throat> but like yeah, like you said, there's not really. I mean, Noah came from this lineage, but um, chapter six, verses one. Um, you know, he's talk, man is referring to the human beings, um, not specifically man. Hopefully, you're, you're smart enough to realize that, but. Um, I think it's interesting that it highlights daughters. That's a note that I had made too. Yeah. Um. One. One. One thing. <clears throat> a note that I wrote down was the fact that could this be following the pattern from the temptation of Adam and Eve? Uh, meaning, Adam was with Eve during the temptation and during her grabbing the fruit and biting it. Uh, but it singled out Eve. I don't think it singled it out singled her out because she was the weaker of the two, but um, I think she was really singled out because as we see down the line that it is from woman that the Messiah comes or that the Savior comes to rescue us from the sin. So I've been it's something we didn't say either about Eve, giving her a benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. God told Adam not to eat of the fruit. Then he made Eve later. She wasn't standing there. She didn't misquote God. Adam didn't teach her right. I mean, honestly, the the New Testament throws it on his shoulders. And to look at, you know, just order of happening, he was the one told, and he obviously didn't tell her correctly or strong enough. Maybe he didn't impress it enough when he taught it to her. But uh, I just noticed that we had not said that when we went through that section ourselves. That's a good point. Well, what do you think of my view as far as, it singled out Eve, even though Adam was there, because I think Eve was a highlight as far as the Messiah coming through the woman. Um, and here it's highlighting the daughters because from the daughters, they're going to give birth to these giants. I, that, that was my thoughts of, you know, why they singled out the daughters. But that's just a thought. It, I don't know about Eve simply because there wasn't anything for well, I guess if you look at it, the at the Bible as a whole, yeah, God knew we were going to fall, so God knew he was going to do the Messiah thing. Yeah. So he knew he was going to give birth to Messiah through the woman, like you know, like any child is born. Right. So, yeah, I can go with that. Uh, and it, that goes along with also that we see Satan and all of his servants copying God constantly. Not They're not original in any way. Right. They're, they never had their own thoughts and what they were going to do. Uh, verse two. Um, here's where it talks about the sons of God, and the daughter or the daughters of man, uh, were attractive. So the women were attractive. So that's a plus thing. <clears throat> the sons of that's God. That's always a plus, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I mean, well. <laughs> so, um, it says the sons of God took the daughters of or the daughters of men were attractive, and the sons of God basically they took as their wives any they chose. And I want to stop there because here is this verse is where another view is split. Um, 
David may tell you what he believes. I'm sure he will. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Wait in anticipation. I'll, I'll always <laughs> tell you what I think. <laughs> well, me and, actually, me and David have had this conversation in light, not heavy, not really, um, not in length, really, I guess, just kind of in passing. Yeah. Um, and we've made jokes about it, but we've never really dealt with the underlining theme, we just kind of yeah. joked about it. So, <clears throat> um, but verse two, um, dealing with the sons of God, um, one view is that it's implying that the sons of, why is it phrased sons of God and daughters of men? Um, the phrase sons of God, one, some people believe that it's um, sons of these kings or, you know, sons of royalty, sons of, of the kings, you know, these rulers. Uh, the problem with that view is the phrase sons of God never in the Old Testament is referred, refers to, uh, in the plural, uh, you know, people that are from a king or from a ruler or so yeah. forth. So in Job chapter uh, three, verse two, I believe, and it says, you know, say, uh, the Satan or the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. Not three, two, 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 three, or two, one, something like that. I, I don't remember. <laughs> it's in chapter one and chapter two of Job. I know that. <laughs> but the phrase "sons of God" and Satan also came with them. Um, the sons of God is actually referring to angelic beings. So that's why you know we get into this this verse, and people wonder what is it actually talking about. Um, so you know we dealt with the, that view. Another, you know, the lineage of Seth is one view. Sons of kings or rulers is another view. Um, we'll just go ahead and kind of hit the the third view, which is um, some people believe that the Nephilim are uh, fallen angels. The Nephilim are well, descendants. Descendants of the fallen angels yeah. sleeping with the women. Yeah. So the sons of God here are fallen angels, Yeah. which Enoch calls watchers. Right. So... To, to establish, if we say sons of God, fallen angels, or watchers, those are all the same. Yeah. Basically. And their union with the daughters of men being uh, flesh and blood, human being, women, right. their children are Nephilim. So we're thinking from here on out, if we say Nephilim or mixed hybrid, some kind of, you know, some kind of phrase like that, their, their children, they are flesh and blood, and they are, and to go ahead and throw out an example, uh, Zeus, Perseus, Theseus, some of those are uh, combinations of some kind of angelic or uh, godlike creature. So to stop dancing around it, we need to go ahead and say one thing that uh, modern Christianity is afraid of commonly is the word Elohim and saying that there are other gods. We have, I think, touched on this before when we have said basically that uh, – Yahweh God is an Elohim. Not all Elohim are God. Yahweh right. God. He says, there's none like me. So it's the same thing as uh, all Baptists are Christians, but not all Christians are Baptists. Some are Methodists. Some are AGs. So you have different branches, different whatever, but they still fall under an umbrella. So what is the, the word Elohim? Um, I think we've mentioned this also before, but it, yeah, I always hear it again and again. Elohim is not a name for God. It is the word for God. It is plural. El is the word for God. 
El was the name of a Canaanite god. It was not his title, but that became a widely used name or word for God. So the chief god commonly of a religion would be called El. But for the most part, Elohim is the plural word for gods. And we do see in different places in the Old Testament, I think it's Psalm 82, where Yahweh God, and you could think about this as capital E Elohim, calls them little e Elohim. Just same as we say in English, we say little g, little g God. So we just need to make a distinction between little e Elohim and Yahweh God, big e Elohim. Um, Hebrews will tell you, not Hebrews the book, but Jews will tell you uh, that the, we've already talked about some of the grammar in like chapter one. So there is a Elohim, which is a plural noun enacting a singular masculine third person verb. So all the verbs are, are in, in the he form, which implies that the, the subject who's doing it should be singular, but it's not, it's Elohim. So the common interpretation of that is the majesty of God. The common Christian interpretation of that, of course, is that that is the Trinity. But either way, the word Elohim, capital E, would simply apply to Yahweh God, the Trinity, as we call the Godhead. That would be God, there is none like me. And we're talking about three in one. Yes, I know that conflicts with some Old Testament theology, but uh, from, from a Jewish perspective, but little e Elohim is plural, plural. Uh, plural little e Elohim or little g gods. So just to make the distinction there. So if we then say, if you'll picture a curtain between us and the physical world here, sitting, I'm, I'm sitting at a desk, Mark is sitting at a desk. And basically anything that is beyond this uh, real world material realm that we live in and exist in that we're locked to anything beyond that, that we might call a ghost or uh, UFOs seem to come in and out of our space. Right. Those things that are on the other side of our physical reality that are conscious entities of some kind, those other ones are Elohims. And in the Jewish mind, before they, before they had to deal with Christians coming up and saying, oh, this explains the Elohim, before there was that conflict of saying there's multiple gods, it was very easy for them to say, oh, Elohim refers to anything as an entity that's angelic, or demonic, or God, all of them are Elohim. They're all past the curtain of the material realm. They're not us. Right. They're not humans, and they're not lions, and they're not donkeys, and they're not a tree, and they're not wood, a wooden table. So just making that distinction, that when we refer to Elohim, we'll try to consciously state that we're talking about uh, little g gods, little e Elohim, or big e Elohim, whichever we're talking about. The other thing there that we're looking at here specifically in uh, 6.2 is sons of God, which Mark is telling you uh, what he thinks there and the word Nephilim, uh, sons of God. That being stated, uh, I think this is, and you'll even see this in your English translations, a capital G God. That's what we're calling big E Elohim. That is Yahweh God, the the, the Trinity Godhead. That's not <clears throat> uh, little g gods. So these sons of God would be uh, something that he has made or created. In the Old Testament, as I was looking through it, I guess this is not very, very long. I'll just read through it right quick because it really does a, does a separation for us from Old Testament and New Testament, what this phrase is attached to. Uh, 
So sons of God and the Nephilim. Sons of God is Benecha Elohim. Bene is just plural sons of Ha the Elohim. That's big E Elohim. So the sons of God. Where else does this show up? In Job 1, these are the angelic hosts. They came to present themselves before God. The devil is among them. He's not hanging out with a bunch of guys from Cain's line coming before God. The devil is not hanging out with them. He is hanging out with others who are his equal kind. They're all coming to report in. Right. Uh, Job 38, 7, the stars sang, and the sons of God shouted for glory. This is the, uh, by the way, this is something I, I thought was funny when I first noticed it. In all of our hymns and Christmas songs and stuff, the angels come sing. Angels never sing in the Bible. This is the closest verse where you ever see sing and angels or the sons of God. The stars are singing. Sometimes we know they're stars, depending on what verse we're looking at. Right. But angels never sing in the Bible. They came to the shepherds and said. <laughs> Just a neat thing. But Deuteronomy 32, 8. There is, I think this is the one. Yeah, there's a little bit of translation argument in this verse, or these, these verses right here. We'll look at it. Uh, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided the man, uh, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. The Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. So he's making a distinction there saying that the Most High, who is big G God, Number or he divided the the borders for mankind for all the people groups according to the number of the sons of God. If that is who we're saying it is, according to the angels, that kind of feeds into the concept uh, throughout, like Daniel, when Daniel is praying to Michael and Michael's come, praying to God. Michael is on his way with an answer, and he says, "I was fighting the prince of Persia." And we see these other entities in different little places throughout the Bible where. Uh, there is a spirit behind a king. King is over the country. The spirit is over the country. So these countries are fighting for more land, power, and money over the whole earth. And that's why, uh, you know, this, this whole country rises up for a time and they become weak after a while. And then another country rises up, but there's battle constantly between nations all the time. And if we look at this and say, uh, what's going on here, if represented, because that's what we, have said in other places. That's what we see in other places in the Bible before and after Genesis 6 here is that there is an, uh, a spiritual situation going on behind all material situations. Right. So uh, when the Most High divided the nations for their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the son, number of the sons of God. The difference in this right here is that, uh, let's see, Greek Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in Greek, the Masoretic text and the Qumran scrolls. Qumran scrolls, the Dead Sea scrolls, the Masoretic text are Jewish scribes who did the, a lot of the copying and stuff. When you look at uh, Hebrew, uh, Hebrew Tanakh now, all the dots and dashes and stuff you see, which are vowel sounds, right. the Masoretes put those in. That's Masoretic uh, marking that they, they made up in order to retain uh, proper pronunciation for vowels. They, I'll, I'll read, sons of God. Some others say sons of Israel. Uh, I think the JSB, which is the, the Jewish study Bible. Well, I'm looking at Genesis 6. I've never, heard, I've never heard that translation, sons of Israel. Let me look right here. I want to say 
I could be off on saying this one is. See, I'm looking at some notes here and there trying to figure out but why is this written this way? <clears throat> uh, okay, the Tanakh here says B'nai Yisrael. So this Tanakh, modern English translation of the Hebrew they have here, says the sons of Israel. But then the Masoretes or the Masoretic text, which um, I would I'd have to look into it and say, what's the difference in a Masoretic text and the Tanakh text? But the Masoretic texts agree with the Qumran scrolls, which say are saying sons of God. Right. Uh, some others say sons of Israel. The JSB notes, Jewish study Bible notes, say uh, sons of the Most High or sons of Elyon, which is the formal title of El, that's capital E-L, the senior God who presided over the divine council in the Ugaritic literature of ancient Canaan. We haven't even gotten into the divine council so i guess this brings us to that concept or that, that <laughs> subject uh which leads right to psalm 82 uh, i did put this in my notes in that way because i'm just kind of when i come across it myself in my own study i thought well, this is the time to cover that so to branch off on that for a second psalm 82 1 god big g god has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods little g gods he holds judgment so this is uh Yahweh God holding judgment over little gods. Divine council, he called together a, uh, a meeting, basically. He sits in the middle of them. He judges them. I said, uh, this is verse 6. I said, this is uh, big G, Yahweh God speaking. You, he's speaking plural to them, are little G gods. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. And fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth. This is the psalm writer speaking to Yahweh God, capital G. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. If you put all this together, what we just now talked about, uh, he has divided out the nations, given them to the quote-unquote sons of God, which are the angels. This way, if we take it that, that interpretation of it. Right. And then he is rising up right here, Psalm 82, at the, in verse 1. And saying, everybody come together, I've got a judgment for you. He's not happy with it. If you read the verses uh, 2 through 5 there, he's not satisfied. They're supposed to be taking care of people and taking care of what's going on on the earth. Kind of like we see uh, the end of Hebrews 1. They're ministering spirits. They're supposed to be looking out for us. Instead, here we have you know, 6,000 years of history of war and battle constantly and murder and everything else. So he says, I'm going to judge all of you. And the psalm writer says, rise up, O God, you inherit the nations." So they all come back to God, big G God, in the end. So in Deut Deuteronomy 32, uh, we see Yahweh God hand out the nations. Of the Let's see, I may be reading the same thing I just now told you off my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate to do that, but just make sure I don't miss a detail. Uh, in Deuteronomy 32, we see Yahweh God hand out the nations of earth to lesser Elohim to govern and rule, protect. It's similar to the cherub of uh, Genesis 3.24. Basically receives the Garden of Eden. He's just, he just got a guardianship over it. He's, he's assigned to it. Uh, I wouldn't say he's ruling over it because man's been kicked out. There's not really anybody there to rule over. He's, he is guarding it in a way. Right. Uh, after Adam has rejected his inheritance... 
That's what Adam did when he sinned. He rejected his inheritance. Mankind, we, he rejected our inheritance. By being sinners, we are rejecting our inheritance. There is something set aside for us that is that can be ours, but we have rejected it in a sense. Uh, but after we rejected it, it goes to another. After Adam rejected the Garden of Eden and after he rejected being basically king over the earth, then another came and took what he he basically put it on the table and walked out. Uh, Satan walks up and says, I'll take that deed and I'll do what I want to do with it. Right. Um, we, and I mentioned this before. We see this throughout the Bible, uh, a land and a bride. And that was where that all started, basically. Uh, let's see. Specifically, in Eden is under divine protection of someone who is not flesh and bone. And I'm referring back to the cherubim there. When Satan offered Jesus to the nation, uh, offered Jesus the nations of the world, Jesus didn't correct him. Uh, so they obviously are under his control to dole out how he wants to. By the end of Psalms 82, Yahweh God has judged all the Elohim, little e, that were in charge of the nations. Man, it's hard to read through your notes when Matt keeps <laughs> auto-correcting them and you got all kind of crazy. Uh, anyway, he reclaims the whole earth for himself. So that would include the bride and the land. That concludes kind of all the mentions of phrase sons of God in the Old Testament. None of them are human. They're all talking about some kind of Elohim. Let me um, go ahead. On verse two, one of the debates that go against that theory, as far as yeah, them there being angelic beings or demonic beings, whichever phrase you want to use, is that they married. It says they married the wives, and uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to tell you my view on this, but um, you're not. <laughs> I'm not. You, you, you might you might get it overall, but so. So I was looking at all the views and figured out which one makes most sense to me, biblically. Um, not just because it's too far out there to grasp and 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 hold on to. Because um, if you look, if if you read the book of Ezekiel, there's things there that are just too far out there for me, but they're there. So I don't really see anything too far out there, um, even with that belief. Um, one of the uh, Scriptures that people quote that's again that tries to shed light and and comes against it is Matthew twenty two, thirty uh, verse thirty. For in the resurrection, uh, they neither marry nor give a marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Meaning, um, the angels in heaven don't marry. Um, when I was looking at that verse one, the obvious, which was kind of stupid, was well, some like angels in heaven, not demons. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, which is kind of you know I I don't think it's specifically, but I thought about marriage. You know, this is before you're given away, um, and walking down the aisle and saying the I do's and all this. Marriage is when you have sex. You're now one. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know Adam and Adam and Eve. As soon as they slept together, they became married. Um, that's how yeah. marriage was viewed um, up to this time. So um, we see that they, all it, the way up to the time of Isaac too. Yeah, he didn't have a ceremony. Rebecca just came in, and they were married. Period. Right. So you you follow that the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, the whole marriage thing is quite different than what Jesus is talking about. I think. Yeah. Um, you you know in Hebrews it does talk about how. 
we can entertain angels without even knowing. Um, meaning, if demons can possess people and pigs and whatever else, um, you know, we believe demons can possess people. Um, another theory is not necessarily that angels slept, but they possessed men to sleep with the women, which is kind of a, a little bit of a different theory. I'm not sure about that or not. I haven't really heard that, but I haven't really given much thought, but in the verse here, there's no human man mentioned. That's that's interjecting something because you don't trust what it actually says to me. Right. And you know, if demon one demons are opposing God regardless. Yeah. Um, so if God doesn't want you, if God doesn't, if there's no marriage in heaven, because there's no need for marriage because God is all you need. Um, so if these demons come and they're disobeying God, they don't want any part of God. They see humans as God's masterpiece that, um, God has a relationship with them and he sees that they're, um, uh, you know, multiplying and all this, what better way to get back at God, um, is to completely corrupt the human race. Thus judgment comes as we find out later and God just wipes the whole earth. Yeah. Um, and obviously the demons will be judged. Um, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because I, I do think it's interesting that uh, mankind was punished as a result of this and not, if they are, not the angelic beings or demonic beings or spirit. I'll say spiritual beings to cut that out. Uh, there, there's something I, I can't say I have proof text for this, but there is something I've heard again and again in this. This interpretation realm of this 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 boat uh, that there is a difference in angelic beings or fallen angel beings and demons being souls or spirits that belonged to the nephilim. The nephilim being the supposed thing is there they are unredeemable. Uh, spiritually, they are unredeemable because they are not originally part of God's plan, but somehow came to exist. So when they are killed in the flood, um, their their spirits that hover about do not they're not redeemed. They do not uh, go to hell or heaven. They they float about bodiless, and they are the ones. Those are the demons that seek to be in a body, not fallen angels. That's a distinction I have heard. Like I said, I don't have proof text myself for that. So you believe the Nephilim died when the flood came. Yes, they were living beings, according to this. They were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Right. So they were living, breathing beings. They needed oxygen like we do. They were drowned, just like we would be drowned from <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from right. that much water. Well, again, if I'm getting ahead of myself, you know, we can go with it or come backwards. But when you say that, you know, you look ahead and um scripture and you find um ancestors from the nephilim well there goes your verse 4 though the nephilim are on the earth in those days and also afterwards right that's why i so, I, yeah. I don't understand i don't understand why you think that if if they were people if they were people or whatever um and obviously no one in his family were the only human being saved but if there's a lineage of the Nephilim traced coming up in the Old Testament, like yeah, um, 
obviously they're not connected with no one as Femi as far as genealogy is concerned. Well, why why do we say that? Because we don't know where his son-in-laws came from. Hmm. His wife, we don't know what family she's from. His daughters are from him. We know that he, if, if we were to look at what we think Scripture is saying here, we would judge that he is pure and that some part of his daughters are his bloodline, so they are you know, at least half pure. We don't know where his wife came from. We don't know where his sons-in-laws came from. They could very easily, you know, as far, theoretically, be sure. carrying Nephilim genes. Gotcha. I that guess I would sense. say I think that God would probably protect against that. That's just opinion. But it's to get a uh, if if he's protected against that and they're not carrying Nephilim genes, let's go down that route for a minute. If it's true that Nephilim spirits are disembodied spirits after the their bodies are killed in the flood and their spirits are still hovering on earth and they're always seeking to possess someone, like you said, New Testament, they're possessing pigs and people, right. then you would almost have to fall back on the theory you mentioned a moment ago, which I didn't care for really, that these fallen angels are possessing men who are having sex with women and their children are becoming giants and famous right. men of renown. One of the thoughts I thought about as far as the spiritual beings sleeping with women is um, I really, I don't like talking about this because I, it is what it is. Jesus was born by the spirit yeah, with Mary. Right. So is it, was God married to Mary? No. There is a spiritual dimension that we don't understand how it took place. Um, we know based on scripture, God doesn't possess people in a sense. The Holy Spirit comes into people that accept him. Demons just kind of find a home. They're wanderers, kind of like Cain. They're just wanderers and looking and yeah. they find a home and they make them, they make their home there. They, well, in some of Jesus' uh, words, they come in if they get an opportunity. Yeah. If, if there's an open door, they walk through it. So when I think of the concept of, of God and Mary, Having Jesus, mm -hmm. not having sex, but just the spiritual, whatever happened. Yeah. Then we could also, you know, it, it took my mind back to can a, then can a spiritual being uh, sleep with a woman in a sense and have a child? Uh, first of all, let's say two things here. I didn't, I should have mentioned this. There are two different theories on why they were there uh, in those days and afterwards. One of them is that is what we just now mentioned that the spirits are still around, and they become involved in some way in genetically causing themselves to be created again, or possess uh, at some point a conception or something, or possess a man who's having sex with his wife, and the child comes out it's nephilim. The other theory is a second was called in second incursion, which means they do the exact same thing again. The fallen angels, not the nephilim, the fallen angels do the exact same thing again after the flood and cause a second incursion. Gotcha. So that's the two things there. What was the question you just now asked, though, as far as, okay, uh, can angelic beings have sex with women? Number one, I would say two things here, too. Um, and we'll get into this in just a moment. Yeah, I mean, I'm Let's, careful with that because I, I, I'm not saying God and Mary. Yeah. But that was a, so that's where I'm kind of uh, 
if we look at what these, and I want to go through some of these, but some of the other uh, mythologies that have this, this mix of gods and women all over the place, those other mythologies do not tell you a story of sex. Zeus reigned as golden water from a, or, you know, out of a, came in a window as golden rain on a woman to impregnate her one time. That's not what we think is normal sex. Right. But somehow that is attributed to the son she had later from that. Uh, so I don't think we need to say they, they had to physically have sex. On the right. other hand, uh, two angels and Yahweh God came to sit down with Abraham before they went to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. They ate real food. <laughs> they sat down with Abraham in the cool of the day. They went in and physically affected the men in Sodom. They, they struck them with blindness. They were able to manifest some kind of happening in the physical realm. And they saw those guys. They were wanting to come in and have sex with them. So yeah, all the men in the town parents. saw the guys. Yeah. Lot was sitting in the square. He saw them come in town. He diverted them and said, this place is not safe. Come sit at my house. He thought they were regular men. Same thing you said a while ago about we've entertained angels without knowing it. Right. So uh, just some different things there that there's no reason. we We're talking about a whole lot of things we don't know. <laughs> yeah. We don't know that angels can't manifest physically because the Bible says for the most part, that's what it appears that they're doing. And we don't know if they can manifest physically that they can't have sex. Obviously, looking at the Bible as a whole, if we say these are angels who manifested physically and had sex with women, we can look and say, if we believe that part, that we know from everything else that God is saying, that's not my plan for angels or man. Right. But they've been given free will just like we have, obviously. That's why some of them have left with Satan. Mm -hmm. uh, or I'm not sure about the connection of who's who on this, but Semyaza. They left and followed Semyaza, according to Book of Enoch. I'm not sure who he is or if that's another. Because if I was thinking about this uh, the other day before we got back together for this uh, this podcast, that we already discussed purposely that Satan is not mentioned by name as being in the garden. The serpent is. Yep. Plus, Satan is not his name. Satan is the accuser, Hasatan. So that's the title. Devil is not his name. That's a title. <laughs> yeah. Lucifer, technically shining one. I I want to say I have studied that out to see where it came from. It was a a King James translation of a Latin word. That's is that from the Isaiah fourteen passage? I think yeah. I think it is. Yeah, it is. Either way, it's it's more of a King James thing from a Latin version or a Greek version. Uh, translate uh, transliterating a name. But that doesn't seem to be his original name. Lucifer was not his original name, I don't believe. So I'll just, I've just been wondering, is Semyaza possibly the devil or the accuser, the, the main, the main uh, nemesis against us, if that was his original name or not? Just, just throwing that out there. But Right. Uh, let me read this verse. Um, 2 Peter 2, 4. Well, I'm going to read more than just verse 4, but that's where I want to start. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, which, that's another topic, but um, here is talking about 
um, angels sinned and God cast them down um, in chains until judgment, which judgment hasn't took place. So what is possessing people? What is going around? But anyway, I'll, I'll continue. Uh, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, which this is in context of what we're reading in Genesis chapter 6. Um, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Um, I think I'll stop right there. Um, so it's kind of talking about judgment coming and all that. Can I throw um, something at you? On sure. That? If we're saying that demons are disembodied spirits of Nephilim that were flesh beings, they were offspring of gods in flesh, and they died, and they are they are unable to go to, quote-unquote, go to an afterlife place of rest, and they're always seeking to possess people, then they're the ones possessing. Here, the angels sinned. They're the ones cast into hell. Right. Fallen angels are not trying, or angels are not trying to possess people. They can manifest. So there, there is a distinction right there that kind of feeds that theory that the ones that are uh, spiritually possessing people or are seeking bodies are not angels because angels, the ones that broke that, that barrier, they crossed that line God had set up and said, I don't want you doing this. Those ones that crossed that line, just like we saw in the book of Enoch, they say, uh, we're all going to go do this thing together. And some was worried about knowing good and well, what he was doing was wrong and says, I don't want to go break this rule because none of y'all come with me. They said, okay, we'll all go together. So the ones that did it were fallen angels. Those fallen angels were the ones that are judged as sinners being in chains in hell, and the ones that are possessing people would have to be somebody else besides them. Not angels, but still spiritual, which would point back to demons. Right. And uh, Jude 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, uh, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment uh, of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding cities, which which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued a natural desi- desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So again, here Jude is kind of talking about um, the angels sinning and having that eternal punishment. I will say, um, looking at looking at those couple of verses with Jude and Peter, um, you know, kind of getting in the Book of Enoch, which is which reveals about the Nephilim and and things. Um, Enoch, we don't believe Enoch is a part of Scripture. You know, me and my wife were having this conversation, and she didn't understand what I was talking about. On um, the Book of Enoch is a part of the Septuagint. It is not part of the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, and I had a friend argue with me, you know, how do you know it's not scripture? And my biggest, you know, because it was in the Septuagint. And my biggest argument was, now, the Hebrew Bible um, back then was uh, different as far as the ordering it goes. It's Genesis to Chronicles. Not necessarily Genesis to Malachi, but it includes all the books that we have. It's just 
different chronologically. Um, so when Jesus came and he talked about, he read from Isaiah and he said, the scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. If all of the books, now Jesus, ha, now Jesus was reading from Genesis through Malachi, um, or Jesus through Chronicles. If, if Enoch wasn't a part of their Bible and, um, it was supposed to be considered a scripture, I'm thinking Jesus probably would have said something. Um, but because Jesus said, the scriptures fulfilled in your hearing, and then Jesus comes along and fulfills all these prophecies and kind of completes the Old Testament except for the second coming. I think that's kind of the stamp of approval as far as what we have in the Old Testament is scripture. Um, now, there were there were verses from the book of Enoch um, on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, mm-hmm. There's also, Jude quotes the book of Enoch. So, they are aware of this book. Um, there's a circulation of this book. Um, like, like I just said, Jude quotes a prophecy what's, from Enoch. What's the comment we had made though, when Jude quotes the prophecy, he quotes it right quick and then goes on because he expects all his Jewish listeners or right. readers to understand what he's talking about. And he ain't got to stop and explain it. They already know what the book of Enoch is talking about. He just makes reference to it and then keeps on going. So, right. So I, I, Based on reading, based on reading the verses I read from Peter, when he kind of compares the falling angels and and goes back to the times of Noah, and reading Jude talking about the falling angels and then quotes a prophecy from Enoch, mm. I personally believe that Jude and Peter are under the assumption that um, the Nephilim are fallen ones. The the spiritual aspect of sleeping with women and creating these giants. I'm under the assumption that Peter and Jude have that theory. They're the fallen ones or the, are the offspring ones? The offspring ones. Okay, okay. And well, I guess we should say that the word Nephilim, yeah, we haven't looked at it yet. <laughs> yeah. The word sorry. Nephilim is, the, is not giants. No. It's Nephal, im, plural. Nephal is to fall. Right, or, fallen, yeah. So they are fallen ones. Um, well, I was going to say, but, Josephus also, I don't know if you've ever read any of Josephus's. A little. Um, but Josephus believes that theory as well. Yeah. So um, you have a lot of, so you have the book of Enoch circulating. You have these, you know, Jew quoting. You have Peter talking about uh, comparing the angel sending to this event that we're reading about the flood. Um, so there seems to be an underlining theme. And, and obviously the book of Enoch and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, you know, preserved, which, you know, is a miracle within itself, but that's another thing. I was going to say, look at my Dead Sea Scrolls this past week at some of these notes and some of the things about Enoch and everything and the yeah. whole Genesis flood. Uh, the, who were these guys? They were not called the Qumran cave guys. What were they called? The Essenes. Yeah. Uh, the Essenes that kept track of making copies of this, that, and the other and uh, making copies and storing them away, et cetera. They wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls down. Their common interpretation about what happened back in Genesis 6 was these were fallen angels mating with women. They had sons and uh, or sons who were men of real power, et cetera. And we're, we're pointing at kind of things like, like Hercules, et cetera. Yeah. So. Let, let me read one thing from Josephus. Uh, he says, For many angels of God accompanied with women begat sons that proved unjust despisers of all that was good on the account of confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom God, um, the Grecians called giants. Um, 
I'm, that's one of many quotes that I have, but I'm I'm not gonna read all of them. But yeah, one of the mission notes I have here in my Jewish study Bible uh, is just referring to verses one through four. The brief narr or this brief narrative reads like a condensation of a much longer, well-known myth. It records yet another breach of the all-important boundary between the divine and the human and explains why human beings no longer attain to the great ages of their primordial forebearers. Yet the, the ages start dropping down after the flood era. Uh, it also explains the origin of the Nephilim, verse 4, to preternatural giants that Israelite tradition thought once dwelt in the land, Numbers 13. Just, just another place. Every, every place I looked, basically uh, wholeheartedly across the board agrees with that interpretation until we get into more recent commentary like 1800s to now. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, I do want to go through a couple of things of your notes that you had sent me. Just because uh, Mark did a lot of the work of typing out notes that are specifically uh, the parts picked out from the Book of Enoch. So we'll look at those and then go through some things, uh, whatever that spurs as we go along. Let's see. I'm going to look at a little while also Anak. Uh, Anakin, the Emim, uh, Zemzemim, all those. We'll look at those as, yeah. as the night. I was about over. to ask you if we're going to. Go through and equip. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. I'm just trying to get down to. Oh, let me let me say one thing before you read. Go ahead. Um, one thing that um, another thing about the Book of Enoch before we kind of read into it is, um, I want understand this concept. You know, people say, well, "Why did you quote from the Book of Enoch?" It, you know, um, it should be considered scripture. Well, Paul quoted from secular poets and philosophers. Um, you know, I yeah. can quote someone. I could quote a truth from someone, but it doesn't mean everything they say is truth. And what I mean by that is um, all, all truth is God's truth. Two plus two is four. As silly as it sounds, it's not, it's not in the Bible, but it's true. And we believe <laughs> that all true is God's truth. God's not a liar. So anything he reveals that we can comprehend is true is God's. It doesn't mean it That's doesn't. That's not in the book of first calculus. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hey, it, but so I want you to understand that the book of Enoch could contain, could contain truth. Other books can contain truth. The question you have to have ask as far as the Bible goes is one, does it line up with scripture? Number two, is it true? And number three, just because it's not a part of the Bible doesn't mean it doesn't contain truth that relates to the Bible. So yeah. anyway, go ahead. Let's that. see. I was going to grab a couple of things because you've found some stuff I've never seen before. Uh, Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 14, verse 6. And this is part of the Apocrypha, uh, also from Baruch 3, we'll read. So the Wisdom of Sol Solomon, 14, 6. For even in the beginning, when arrogant giants were punished, were perishing, excuse me, the hope of the world took refuge on a raft. And guided by your hand, I'm assuming the, the writer's talking to God, yeah. by, uh, guided by your hand, left to the world the seed of a new generation. For blessed is the wood by which righteousness comes. Baruch 3, 24 through 26, and you have a note here saying that Baruch was the scribe for Jeremiah. How vast the territory that he possesses, 
It is great and has no bounds. It is high and immeasurable. The giants were born there, who were famous of old, great in stature, expert in war. God did not choose them or give them the way of knowledge or give them the way to knowledge, so they perished because they had no wisdom. They perished through their folly. So then we get into uh, Enoch, and we did read this. I don't know if it was last time or not. We'll read it again just so it's set all here in one place together. Yeah. Uh, And it happened that when the sons of men multiplied in those days, they begat good and beautiful daughters, and the angels, the sons of heaven, saw them and longed for them and said to one another, Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from among them and bring forth for ourselves children's. Uh, children's. <laughs> uh, let's have some children's. And Semyaza, who was their ruler, said to them, I fear you may not wish to do this deed, and I alone will be responsible for a great failure. Therefore they all answered him, Let us swear an oath and devote one another to mutual destruction. This is a different translation right here than I've read before from Enoch. Either way, uh, not to return, uh, not to turn back from this decision until we complete it and do this deed. Then they all made a vow together and put each other under a curse to regard this. Enoch seven one through six. And I think I don't think I said that was Enoch six one through five. This is Enoch seven one through six. Then they took for themselves women, each of them choosing a woman for themselves. They began to go uh, go to them and defile them. And they taught them sorcery and enchantments and cutting of roots and explaining and explained herbs to them. But those who became pregnant brought forth great giants from uh, 3,000 cubits. The other translation I have is an L, which I don't know what an L is. If it's 3,000 cubits, that's 4,500 feet tall. That's almost a mile tall if it's, mm. if it's a cubit. I know Josephus and others... Um... They believe Goliath was six eight, and then there's some Hebrew texts that say he was like ten something. So he was. It gives it in cubits, and it's like four and a half cubits or something, which ends up being uh, nine foot. I think I've done the math. It's nine foot six. Either way, he yeah he was he was big, but he wasn't uh, nine tenths of a mile tall. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but either way, this like I said, this translation is a little different. It says cubits. The other one says l's, e l l s. These giants ate up the produce of the men. When the men were no, uh, not able to pr- provide for them, the giants had courage against them and ate up the men. So giants started eating people, uh, flesh and blood. They then And they began to sin against birds and wild animals and reptiles and fish, and each one of them ate up the flesh and drank the blood. Then the earth brought up charges against the lawless ones. I do want to say keep that in your back pocket about the animals. They went into the women and defiled them. They had children by them, so mixes from angels and flesh, uh, human flesh. And when they were kind of done with men, they moved on with uh, birds and wild animals, reptiles and fish. So they defiled them. In what way would they be doing that? Some way or another, they're doing the same kind of mix stuff, which is something I want to look at you know, for tonight's over. Moving on to Enoch 15, 3 through 8. And I'm assuming someone's asking a question, uh, whoever the writer is. Why did you go to sleep with the women and be defiled with the daughters of humans, taking for yourselves women like the sons of the earth? 
making and begetting for yourselves giant children. And you were holy, living. He's saying, why did you do this? I mean, after all, and you were holy, living, eternal spirits. Didn't read it with the right inflection. Uh, but then you were defiled with the blood of the women, and with the blood of the flesh you brought forth children, and you longed for the blood of men, just as any of those uh, of flesh and blood do, those who die and are destroyed. Because of this I gave women to them in order to be impregnated and procreate children by them this way, and so that all work is not forsaken in, uh, in them upon the earth. So there's the, the answer here is uh, men and women are flesh and blood, they are born and they die. So they're not going to be destroyed. I created a way for them to have children. Why did you, you were eternal spirits, why did you go into them? Just setting that up there. Uh, you were living in eternal spirits, not dying into all the generations of the age. And because of this, uh, I did not make wives available for you. But the spirits of heaven, their dwelling is in heaven. And now the giants who are born from the spirits, even the strong spirits of flesh upon the earth, their dwelling will be on the earth. <clears throat> uh, let's drops back to Enoch 9, 9. And the women beget giants, under whom the whole earth was filled with blood and wrongdoing. So that's some of the, yeah, that's almost the end of all your notes that you had grabbed out of Enoch. You think you want to add to it? Oh. Uh. Not really. And I wanted to go through uh, what I, what it kind of spurred me to study. And I'll give you a list of, what is this, eight different things. It, it, I guess it'll take me a minute to read through it all, but uh, just some examples. We've already, discussed, we've already read through uh, 6, 1 through 8 in Genesis. We discussed the two main views. Uh, let me turn that. <laughs> I want to explain why or what I used to think before I came to Christianity because when I used to study this other stuff and say, oh, that was pretty common, and then I got saved, I started reading the Bible. When I came to Genesis 6, I just read it, and I said, oh, well, that's what that is. <laughs> I didn't know about any controversy over interpretation. No. Um, the first church I went to, I was asked very soon after going there, after getting saved, been a Christian for maybe uh, 10 or 11 months and was asked to teach teenagers. I said, yes, taught teenagers for about eight or nine years. When we came to Genesis 6, it was very easy for me to say, this is what this is. You've all heard these other things. <laughs> and I didn't know about a controversy. I just thought that's plainly what it is. So here's some of the stuff I had looked at, but some of the reasons also that I took that easy stance because Number one, that's what the words on the page say, but look at a couple of things here. Uh, heroes, because it's said that these are heroes of old, and chimera or mixed beast, I want to name some of those, and flood myths. Uh, to say it now, I'll probably think about it then. Mark and I had seen something somebody put on Facebook about how this was a local flood and nobody else has stories about it. We'll, we'll deal with that in just a minute. So <laughs> the first hero and some of these I try to put in basically in order. I guess you'll see Zeus's name so many times. The guy got around a lot. <laughs> so it's not really an order here. But uh, the first one we're looking at is Bellerophon. Bellerophon is the son of a human mother 
Euronomi. She was the daughter of King Nisus. He was the uh, Bellerophon's father, was an, um, the immortal god. And I'm going to call him God like little E Elohim or little G God. Uh, but just to say they are Elohim, they're on the other side of that, that curtain. They're a spiritual being. Bellerophon had a human mother and a, and a god father, Poseidon. Uh, one of the tasks he did, and a lot of these heroes, they did tasks that nobody else could do. He killed the chimera, or a chimera. A chimera is a mixed beast. That name specifically usually applies to a lion head beast with a goat's body, or it has a lion's body with a goat's head coming out of its back in some descriptions, but it has a snake or a serpent tail. So uh, Bellerophon was a, a half half god, if you want to call him that. He killed uh, one of the chimera. Number two, Perseus. Perseus, son of a human mother, Danae. She was the daughter of King Acrisius of Argos, son of the immortal Elohim, godfather, Zeus. Perseus killed Medusa, who was a gorgon. Uh, we'll get into what some of these creatures are in, in the second section here of Chimera. But uh, gorgons were variously des- described. Gorgons were three sisters having snakes for hair. Some records say they had wings. Uh, Medusa was the one that supposedly was not immortal. Her two sisters were supposedly immortal. But Perseus killed her. Uh, Theseus, or uh, I probably wrote that wrong. Theseus? Yeah, I think that's Theseus. Either way, Theseus was a son of a human father, King Aegis, who was called the Goat Man, and a human mother, Aethra, daughter of King Pythias of Trozen. He had a godfather, which this would kind of point to uh, all kinds of stories have him having two fathers. One's a god and one's a man. This could be, as Poseidon, this could be one of the situations where possibly this god figure is possessing or taking control of a human king or human man to have a, a son by him. I do want to point out as we go along, too, if maybe you're noticing already, Bellerophon's mother was the daughter of a king. Perseus's mother was the daughter of a king. Theseus's father was a king and his mother was the daughter of a king there's a lot to be said here as we read through this about these nephilim demons possessing people fallen angels and bloodlines either the fallen angels these gods like zeus and poseidon either they only go to king families or the people that they are actually going to become kings which I, I could go with either one of them, but I just kept seeing that whatever's going on here with these fallen ones who have uh, left heaven in rebellion of some, some form and have crossed this line into having sex with women to have children who are uh, physically stronger and some of them are known for being uh, mentally quicker and more agile and intelligent. These are being tied together with bloodlines of royal families. So just a neat detail, I thought, that really says a lot. Um, Next one, Jason. He was the son of a human father named Aeson. He was the rightful king of Iokos. Iokos. Yeah, I think that's the way you say it. Uh, He was the great-grandson of the god Hermes on his mother's side. His grandmother, Tiro, also had relations with Poseidon. 
He's the one, Jason is the one, Jason the Argonauts retrieved the Golden Fleece. It was guarded by a uh, fire-breathing bulls and a never-sleeping dragon. Achilles was the son of a human father, King Peleus, who was the son of King Aeacus. So you have a, another king line there for uh, Achilles. His mother was an immortal, or she was a, a god. She was really called a nymph, uh, which is like a lesser goddess. Thetis, he killed Hector. Hector was world-renowned as a warrior of Troy. If anybody has seen Troy being a, a recent movie with, uh, is that Brad Pitt? Mm-hmm. Uh, he kills Hector, and Hector is, like, unbeatable. He is the man. Uh, but he is killed by Paris, who is Hector's brother. Paris shoots an arrow. Apollo guides the arrow to Achilles' heel. So when Achilles was born, his mother, who was uh, an Elohim of some kind, Thetis, she wanted to actually kill all the man of him so he would be only God. She holds him up by his, what we call the Achilles' heel, and dips him into the river Styx, which is the river on the way to the dead. She's trying to kill all the humanity in him, so he, all that's left will be God. So basically, uh, he was invincible. That's, this is how the story goes. He's invincible except for his Achilles heel. So uh, anybody you know, you if you rip or tear or whatever you, in half your Achilles heel, you fall on the ground next. <laughs> you're, you're not uh, Achilles the warrior anymore. Uh, the next one, plus there's, there is a concept here of Apollo guiding uh, Paris's arrow, which is the same thing we see in the Bible. You know, a lot of people might say, oh, this is how this story went. Never think twice about it. If you tell them this is what happened in the Bible, they don't want to hear that. But God guided the stones that David threw at Goliath, killed him. Next one to look at is Odysseus, or his other name would be Ulysses. He is the son of uh, two traditions, both are human fathers, either King Laertes or King Sisyphus, a human mother, Anticlea, who was the granddaughter of the god Hermes. He is a hero warrior known for extreme intelligence and cunning. He blinds the cyclop god, uh, cyclop giant Polyphemus. Polyphemus was the son of Poseidon and Thusa. Thusa was a, I think, a nymph also, but she was a lesser goddess and Poseidon. Cadmus, here's where some things got interesting to me, uh, because Cadmus, most of these things we're looking at are Greek in nature, but Cadmus is the one that ties us over to another land. We'll, we'll get at that as we read through his notes. He was a son of a human father, uh, King Agenor, who was, let's see, King Agenor was the son of Poseidon and a, let's see, a daughter of Epaphus whose name was Libya. So she supposedly is a, the, the name Libya of the country comes from her. So Cadmus, son of a human father, King Agenor, who was the son of Poseidon. Cadmus is the grandson of Poseidon. Um, his grandmother Libya was the daughter of Epaphus, who was the king of Egypt. Epaphus, the son of Zeus and Io. Io was a nymph. So we've got Zeus, who supposedly is a uh, Greek god only, working his way across the Mediterranean Sea, makes his way to Egypt, and has uh, some kind of relations with this other goddess or uh, Elohim, 
a lesser Elohim, has a son who becomes a king of Egypt. That's where we get the daughter Libya from. Cadmus's human mother was King Telephasa. Uh, let's see, she came from Tyre. She was the daughter of Phoenician royalty. If you look at the map where uh, you're, you're now seeing Zeus makes his way across the Mediterranean Sea, goes to Egypt. He also makes his way around. Uh, he goes to Phoenicia, turns himself into a white bull, and kidnaps Europa. Europa is a Phoenician. She's the daughter of the queen Telephasa from Tyre. Phoenicia is basically, what do you want to say, the eastern eastern edge of the Mediterranean, western edge of, of Palestine or Israel, Canaan. So the Phoenicians there are also tied. The Phoenicians and the Egyptians are also tied to this Zeus fellow, whoever he is. Zeus kidnaps a girl who is a princess, Europa. This is where we get the name Europe. He turns himself into a white bull, kidnaps her, takes off. Um, Cadmus, her brother, takes off basically to go rescue her. He's sent by her mother, but takes off to go rescue her. Uh, her. Cadmus is obviously very intelligent. He's related to Poseidon and Zeus and Io, all uh, in some form or another, all Elohims. Being intelligent as he is, he is credited with creating the Greek alphabet. He killed the Hydra. Hercules also is credited with killing the Hydra. That's a water dragon. This is the one where if you cut off a head, two grow back. So by the time Hercules got to it, that story goes that there was, I think, nine heads. And after he saw that when you cut one head off, two grows back, he got a torch. He would cut it off and cauterize it. <laughs> <laughs> Hercules was a smart guy. So either Hercules or Cadmus killed the water dragon called the Hydra. Athena told him to sow the dragon's teeth. And in the story where Cadmus has killed the dragon, the water dragon, Athena tells him to take the dragon's teeth and sow them in the ground. They spring up and become some extremely terrible warriors. And the story goes that Cadmus sees how awesome, you know, and terrible they are, throws a stone into the middle of them, and they don't, they're not sure who, which one did it, so they start fighting amongst themselves. And in the end, only about five or six main ones are left. So keep it in mind, these are sown in the ground. They're dragon's teeth sown in the ground. The word for sown in plural is spartui. The ui on the end is Greek plural, noun. Spartans. These awesome warriors that came out of the dragon's teeth being sown in the ground are Spartans. Just uh, uh, kind of a neat thing I just came across by chance in, in studying some of this. Last one is Hercules or Heracles. He is the son of a human mother, Alcamene. She was the daughter of Electrion, the son of Perseus. So let's see, what is that? One, two, three. Uh, on his mother's side, Hercules is a uh, great-grandson of Perseus, who is a son of Zeus. Hercules is godfather his elohim father is zeus so zeus has been around for a long time he's not dying out uh, he's still very active as far as they think some of the things that hercules performed uh, were called the 12 labors uh, he is supposedly the hero who made the world safe again uh, the 12 labors include chimeras like lions and un with unpierceable skin i think that was called the nemean lion 
if you watch the uh what's the it's, it's called, i think it's called hercules but the hercules movie that came out recently with uh the rock, the rock yeah. yeah he wears this big lion uh skin over him that's the nemean lion that he killed that skin was unpierceable so he wore it after he killed the lion for protection but uh, he killed uh, the Nemean lion with the unpierceable skin. He killed the nine-headed water snake, which is the, the hydra we talked about. He killed man-eating birds with iron claws, beaks, and wings. Orthus, the two-headed dog, a dragon. And I think it was uh, he captured Cerberus, the three-headed dog. Cerberus was a three-headed dog. I think it had snakes. In some descriptions, it had snakes coming out from all over it or its tails. Either way, it had three headed, and it was a guardian of some place. He captured it without hurting it, took it to show it to some king of the time, and then came back and released it unharmed. But, that was nice. <laughs> that was nice of him to do that. Yeah, that's that's only a handful of some of his things. But he, uh, all these heroes are related to lines of kings, or they're related to a god, or or and they did some kind of feat. That was uh, basically killing some kind of odd creature. So these creatures bring us to the subject matter of chimera or mixed beast. This is what I was getting at a while ago when we read your notes that you got out of Enoch about uh, when they basically finished eating mankind, flesh and blood, and had just you know run amok over mankind. They started defiling the birds and reptiles and the fish, etc. So in doing that, uh, chimera or mixed beast. Let's see. The chimera was supposedly a fire-breathing female. Uh, that's important detail, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> fire-breathing female monster with a lion's head, a goat's body, and a serpent tail. And let's see. A chimera is also basically, from what I have heard, is kind of a broad word used for any mixed beast with various animal parts. And you, you can find it if you just look it up for definitions, too. Genesis 6.5 comments on the thinking of man and the intention of man. 6.12 makes reference to all flesh. And we didn't read 12, so just to jump in, six, uh, Genesis 6.12, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Uh, I read that. We read Enoch a while ago. They both agree something was going on with the flesh of all creatures. Let's see, that was uh, Enoch 7.3, who consumed all the acquisitions of men, and when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they, be this is Enoch 7.5, and they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish. So I wanted to take a look and see that, what, just the same as we did with heroes, they bleed across many culture periods. We've got, one who traditionally, if you hear his name, you think Greek God, but he's renamed in with other names later on in Roman mythologies. He's also involved in some of the uh, Carthage myths, which is Tunisia. That's much further west on the northern African coast. He's involved with some things that went on in Egypt. He's involved with some things that went on in Phoenicia. So these uh, gods were not bound to Greek or to, to Greece, they traveled a good bit. In doing that, I just wanted to show that their stories are all over the place and they're well known and accepted by different cultures through different time periods. 
these chimera or these mixed beasts are also, uh, they go way over, all over the place. So just to start on some of those, got a, I got a handful of <laughs> different ones. Sumerian story, Enkidu. He is portrayed in modern art as a bullheaded man. He was a friend of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is portrayed as a giant. So Gilgamesh would most likely be a uh, Nephilim. Enkidu was a wild man who roams with the beast. Um, together they they defeated Humbaba. Humbaba had the paws of a lion and a body and a body covered with thorny scales. His feet had the claws of a vulture, and on his head were the horns of a wild bull. His tail and his phallus, that being his sexual organ, each ended in a snake's head. That's Humbaba. Uh, Enkidu and Gilgamesh killed Humbaba. That's in Sumerian culture. In Babylonian culture, you have Marduk. Kind of goes along with the, the lion body here. A lot of these have some kind of lion body or lion head, but Marduk was a lion with wings. Uh, Iluyanku or Iluyanka was a Hittite story or uh, chimera. A giant dragon-like monster. Uh, and I want to point back to Bring, number one, we're bringing in dragons here a good bit, if you notice. So we did say this already, but uh, if things here on earth look like things in heaven, dragons, and as I was doing my study on this, dragons stretch from the UK, Scotland, Ireland, Northern Europe, all the way to China. Yeah. And, and while there's a lot of these different things that stretch across a long land, I noticed uh, geographical areas where certain uh, beings or whatever they are, creatures show up in those areas. Stories. I guess you can look at it different ways. You can say, well, those are just stories, and they just translated in general local areas. UK to China is pretty stinking broad, but there's there's dragon myths all over the place. So I am pointing back to what I think is probably a dragon class of fallen angel. Uh, let's see, Khadama is from the Hurrian. And if we look at the, on the map, pre-Hittite, the Hurrians came before the Hittites. And it's, there's a, a major city there mentioned in the Bible called Haran. Haran Hurrian. Uh, I'm making my own link there. But they had uh, Hadama, who was a dragon-like sea creature, which emerges daily to eat humans and animals. Uh, in Persia, in Darius the first palace, there was a horned, winged lion griffin. That was a creature they believed in there. Egypt, uh, Sekhmet is a lion-headed goddess. Horus is an eagle-headed god. Anubis or Anubis is a jackal-headed god. In Greece, there were satyrs or satires. Uh, satyrs are part goat and part man with horse tails. In Rome, there was Gorgons, which we've already talked about. Uh, Medusa was a Gorgon. In Celtic belief, there was Kernunos, who was a horned man. In Finmakul and Kulak, uh, and I'm really, these are Celtic names. I know I'm pronouncing them wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but Finmakul and Kulak are giants. Uh, they also have common in their stories as you get towards Northern Europe and the UK, shapeshifters. And this would include stuff like uh, werewolves. 
the Slavs, uh, which is still Europe, common st uh, story elements are dragons and werewolves. The Norse, which is uh, the Celts again, giants in North myths, the giants had to fight, uh, the gods had to fight off the giants. Kind of neat that we, I did see this too, giants fighting gods, that there being wars of, of what's going on with them. Um, if you look at the old movie or the new movie, Clash of the Titans, the Titans were, were the first generation Elohim or spiritual or gods or whatever they were. Right. The second generation were uh, Zeus and, and those guys. So I don't, there's, a, there's some kind of difference between the Titans and the gods, but the gods fought and finally beat the Titans down. So, uh, and that's something I never have been able to keep straight, who's who, et cetera. But <laughs> I just see that concept also of uh, giant versus god wars going through these old myths too. Uh, there are multiple cultures that didn't agree with one another. In India, there is Ganesh, the ele elephant-headed god, Shiva, the four-armed goddess, Dragons, like I said, stretch from the UK to China. Giants stretch from the UK to Sumer, uh, being like uh, Ur, Baghdad, that whole area. The Sumerian, uh, not Sumerian as in Samaria, but Sumerian uh, cultures. And somehow giants make it to America because in the 1800s we have the Native American giant wars. So... There's Native American giant wars, and, and maybe I should call them Bigfoots, but we have histories from the from Native Americans about giants and Bigfoots separately. Uh, supposedly, the Bigfoots gave them a lot of trouble until Europeans came along and they traded and got gunpowder. <laughs> By the way, we're not talking about the Bigfoot. Not yeah, not the Bigfoot because there is no the Bigfoot. There's a lot of kinds. Yeah. That uh, well, the the funny thing is that Bigfoots of different uh, like a local description that is an agreement by many different people for over, over time periods. There's a kind in China. There's a kind in North America. There's a kind in Europe. There's a kind that's agreed upon. Everybody sees in South America, or whatever, but there's Bigfoots uh, all over the planet, <laughs> whatever that is. There's some commonality there. Can, can I sub you for a second? You go ahead. Uh, I'm just curious what you're thinking. Okay. So as you're talking about all these gods and, and where they came from and everything, um, you know, there's religions and beliefs of, and even the mythology of gods, you know, there's religions that believe statues and gods. And we'll look through the Bible as far as them worshiping Baal and, yeah. and come across all these different kinds of gods and statues and so, so forth. Do you believe, just me thinking as you're talking, do you believe that there is this concept of we can't conjure up these thoughts? Because, I mean, all the movies that we have, all the TV shows have come from an idea that we've seen and we just kind of stretch it a little bit or take it too far. We yeah. add multiple things together yeah, and it becomes an idea. So I'm not sure if we ourselves without, um, you know, evolutionists talk about, we create these guys in our minds. I'm not sure we can. What I mean is, do you believe that, um, that these people have witnessed these, giants these um godlike people and they kind of like worship and they tell stories and all of a sudden they kind of stretch it and take it you know what i mean yeah 
if that if yeah. that makes sense what I'm, what yeah. I'm trying to say uh to answer what i think you're asking yes i agree we could have made this up if we saw this kind of thing in a culture well that culture did that and what common modern science will say science believers will say well, that's when man was ignorant and they made that stuff up to explain what they did not understand scientifically. I can go with that, except for the fact of why I'm pointing out this stuff in such a broad range over history of man is that, like you say, could we make all this up? And if we could, would we make this up? So let's, let's say, yes, there's, here's a group right here, wherever you want to place them on the map. This group of people makes up one of these stories like this. Does that necessarily mean that everybody's going to make it up? Because everybody did. That's <laughs> right. that's what I'm getting at. There's giants across the map. There's dragons across the map. There's man bodies with an animal head or something across the map, across different cultures and, and long across time periods. <laughs> yes, I do believe people witnessed this. I do believe these were uh, uh, maybe maybe this is where, where a lot of the listeners are going to take the, the, the exit door. <laughs> but okay. do I believe they are creator gods? No. Are they Elohim of some kind? By definition of how we have defined Elohim at beginning this, yes. Did their offspring, uh, were their offspring different or above or more than normal human beings? It would appear so. Well, I was thinking, you know, if it's hard for us to imagine this because of all the things we know of, but if you set people down who were limited on our knowledge and would you just come up with an idea of this God that you worship? I wouldn't think so unless there was a real God or unless you saw someone of great stature, you're in awe of their power. You're in awe of their presence. Yeah. They're twice they're three times your size. You're like, Oh my goodness, this guy, I mean, we're all five feet, you know, eight inches and this guy's 10 feet tall and yeah. and no one can stop him. Then I can understand, okay, we're going to take this concept and maybe he, maybe he's just this, you know, I don't know if the word God, I mean, God was in the, the wording, but concept, this guy is just, you know, and then you make up these stories then you think of where did he come from? Right. Well, perhaps but you are starting with this godlike person. You're not coming up with this on your own. And that's why I said movies and TV shows and books, even the fiction ones stem from reality ideas. We just kind of stretch them a little bit or and what we, you're getting. at also though, is if we didn't have a, a persona, some kind of entity in front of us, who was a personality and we walked out on the beach as, as let's, let's, let's say, uh, primordial man. There's a word that really invokes evolution, right? <laughs> we walk out on the beach. We just learned how to talk. You and I are sitting there. I say, so, uh, what do you think? We're sitting on the sand and you say, well, there must be a God pushing these waves up here. There's a God of the sea. And I say, what's a God? And you just make up this new story. I don't think that's likely because what you're saying is we see a, we saw some kind of image, possibly a person or entity. And we, we knew they were more than we were. And we come up with something or they told us something. Right. But if we just saw, uh, the sea and waves coming up on the shore and we saw trees growing fruit and dropping the fruit, would we come up with forest spirits? 
Will we come up with sea spirits and those, those, those kind of things? And just and again, let's say some group did. Does that mean that all groups would, by chance, do that? If 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 none of it was true at all, and they ne- nobody ever saw a thing like any of this stuff we're talking about, right? Why would they all make it up all the way across the board? Right. And so that's why I'm getting. I don't think that's 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 uh, feasible. I don't either. Uh, flood myths. Sure. Again, I've only got a, a handful of flood myths because I want to point out that it, they exist across the board also, but you can easily go Google flood myths and you can find a list 30 <laughs> long. There's a, there's a flood story everywhere. everywhere there's, yeah. there's actually three different main, uh, Greek flood myths. <laughs> so there's some here that are, uh, like, uh, Zeustra. Zeusudra, excuse me. Zeusudra is Sumerian. Atrahasis is Babylonian. And the Noah character, Zeusudra is the character name, main character name, I believe, in the Sumerian. His name is Atrahasis in the Babylonian telling. He's the Noah character. He receives warning from the god Enki that Enlil is going to send a flood. Enki told Atrahasis to build a boat. Enki says, uh, the gods depend on mankind for support. There is a concept going through this that uh, mankind was created as slaves for the gods. That, that I, I saw that as I was looking through some of these stories. But Enki says that the gods depend on mankind for support. And Lil wants to send a flood and kill them all. So Enki's like, no, we can't do that. He goes to Atrahasis and tells him to build a boat. When Atrahasis gets off the boat, he offers a sacrifice. Sound familiar? <laughs> uh, Deucalion is from uh, the Attic or the Greek. Attic is another word for, or older word for Greek uh, culture there. Noah's character name in the Greek version is Deucalion. There's three different ones, and I think this was the middle one, the middle of the, of the three uh, flood stories. The Gilgamesh story is also Sumerian again. The Noah character is Utnapishtim. Excuse me. Uh, looking back through it recently, Gilgamesh was, if, like we just now said a second ago, Gilgamesh was a giant. He had a, uh, what was his friend's name? Enki. Enkidu. Enkidu. Uh, basically, I think, if I remember right, the people of the area went to a goddess of the area and told her that uh, Gilgamesh was out of control and overbearing, etc., and they had no power against him. So she made this beast man, who was a wild beast man, who was the exact opposite or mirror image of Gilgamesh. That was Enkidu, the bullheaded man. Uh, Gilgamesh was told about him and went out to him. And let's see, I think this story was along the lines of he could not deal with him. They couldn't deal with each other. He sent a woman out, and I forget the woman's name, but her character name is mentioned. She goes out and basically convinces him to calm down, kind of woos him. (laughs) Most likely this is some kind of sexual story, Uh, but he's he's a beast man. He calms down because of a woman. She takes him back to Gilgamesh, back to town, and they become best friends. Like a while ago we said they killed the, was it the Hadama, I think? Humbaba. Yeah. They killed the Humbaba together. They killed a bunch of beasts together. 
But when it comes down to it, in the end, uh, Enkidu, I think, is gored by some wild boars. And he's on his deathbed when he finally dies. Uh, Gilgamesh in mourning basically is trying to, I think he's trying to find a way around uh, death. So he knows about this story about this guy who never died, whose name Udnapishtim. Udnapishtim was the man who built the boat who went through the flood. And he was, there's, there's several different ones of these uh, flood myths where the Noah character was rewarded afterwards for his faith, as in believing the God who told him and warned him, right. and his obedience for building the, the boat or the raft or the ark. Whoever that character was in some of these stories was rewarded with uh, uh, eternal life or immortality. So Gilgamesh goes on this long hunt. He's got to go find Utnapishtim. But let's see. Utnapishtim re- received warnings from God, the god Ea, uh, which I believe is kind of the same as Gaia or Gaia, which would be a, a Titan-level earlier, like Uranus and Cronus and Ea or Gaia. But uh, after the ship goes aground, he releases a dove, which returns. Second time, he releases a swallow, which returns. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) (laughs) Finally, he releases what? A raven. The raven doesn't return. Udnapishtim leaves the boat and makes a sacrifice. (laughs) That's almost Noah to a T. Not as detailed, but... uh, Oh, and by the way, as I look further, Gilgamesh is two-thirds God and one-third man. So he is a Nephilim. He's also a giant, as we already saw a while ago that detail came out. He is the king of Uruk. Uh, just throwing this out here, Uruk, Edek. Edek was one of the first places that Nimrod started. If Gilgamesh was a king of Uruk and a giant, Nimrod, I think it says... This is something I've seen. Uh, let's see. Nimrod. There's a mighty hunter. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. That's Genesis uh, 10.8. We'll get to Nimrod. But I'm just saying possibly throw it out there. Gilgamesh, Nimrod, any relation? Don't know. Uh, and five, I'm not going to go any further because, like I said, uh, you can – yeah, you, well, you can go look at blood myths and find a hundred. I remember uh, there were several people talking about. I, I wish I, I wish I would have looked it up earlier, but um, people were saying that there's a text um, that has a flood story, but it dates before Genesis, as far as when we got the you know when we got the writings and it dates it. My only question to that is. Just because something is written before you get another copy, it doesn't make it any more true. What I mean is, um, if we go see the same movie, and we go to our friend Shane, and let's say you call him and say, hey, here's what this movie's about. Uh, Well, let me back up. Let's say you go see a movie on a Friday, and I go see a movie on a Saturday. Let's say I call Shane... I saw the movie after you. I see Shane at church Sunday and I say, Hey Shane, this movie's about this. And then you come up Monday and you say, Hey Shane, I saw this movie. It's about this. 
it doesn't mean you're copying me. We both saw the same movie at the same time. It just means I told my story first. Yeah. I could have changed things or I could have shared different things. My point is people could have witnessed this flood and heard stories about it and they could have changed stories and it could have been written down and copied with the different names and twisting. It translates through languages. Yeah, and spread out before Moses ever wrote it. It doesn't mean that Moses' account isn't true or um, as far as the other one goes. Um, Then you look at... It doesn't invalidate one or validate another more or less. Yeah. But then you look at the rest of the Bible and you say, does this, does the flood story, does this one make sense with everything else? Yeah. Versus the other writings. Well, well, I don't know what else they wrote. I just know that they wrote about the flood story. Well, then you don't know anything about the person who wrote it. As far as we know about the Bible, we see it as one complete book and it's interwoven and and it's been proven time and time again as far as what we can test. So, yeah. I just wanted to throw that out there about that. Uh before we get off of this, so we've looked at heroes, flood myths and chimeras or mixed beast I've shown my point of uh, number one. This was the some of the stuff that I used to read and look at and study. Interested in all religions before I got saved. This is some stuff I looked at all the time. Um, so I get saved. I come to the scripture. When I first read the scripture, it was plain to me what was plain to me. <laughs> so it's curious that high-minded super intellects have to be so smart to get rid of the plain words and what they mean. Um, which is, I am referring to, like we said earlier, uh, when you get into more recent, as in the, the previous 200 years-ish commentaries and stuff, this stuff is all explained away off the page. Um, let's see. I've, I've got two little comments here I had written down so I wouldn't forget them. I have since learned a lot more about it from others. But my point is that uh, this was my first natural interpretation from simply reading the Bible. I looked at all these things from Zeus and Perseus and Theseus, Theseus and Bellerophon, and then I came to the Bible and oh, here's the sons of God, the daughters of men, and their their sons were, or their the yeah, other sons were famous men. They were heroes. Oh, that's what the Greek gods were stories were about. That happened, and I kept on reading, and I didn't lose any time over it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it seems to me, let's see. Okay, it it seems to me that the the highly educated New Testament era scholars who deny this interpretation because they're seemingly afraid of having anyone else be called God's little G's instead of just using more uh, language to make distinctions. That's why I wanted to make distinctions of Elohim before we started. Uh, Do some definition looking at with sons of God. We didn't actually do the, uh, the New Testament ones. We basically went Old Testament, sons of God. They defined themselves, as you look at all the scriptures they're mentioning it, as, as angels or related to uh, divine counsel. That's yeah. kind of where we stopped. But I'm, I just want to make the point. This is everywhere. And like like you said, will we all make up the same stuff? I don't think so. It's just that's about as uh, highly unlikely as the huge percentage against um, evolution. Yeah. Which, uh, from a biblical perspective, people will say that evolution is is so far out there on percentage chance. 
the science believer community would say that uh, if we told them all the the mathematical impossibilities of Jesus fulfilling all the prophecies, they would say that's that's highly unlikely. <laughs> I mean, in both directions, we're looking at mathematical possibilities, and it's just mathematically not a good possibility that all these cultures would do this. But uh, sit and think about it sometime or, or look it up. Go look for any mixed human and animal head something gods across any culture you want to and see what you come up with. They're, they're all over the place, so not just confined to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, uh, go ahead. kind of want to go backwards, just verse 3. Um, I never, I never re- looked at it, really paid attention to it, but I saw someone that talked about the 120, his days shall be numbered 120 years. Yeah. And that's where people calculate uh, Noah building the ark. It took him 120 years. That's where they get that calculation, which I never really paid attention. I've always heard people say he built it in a hundred years. Well, they're wrong. I don't believe. No, I don't believe <laughs> that at all. <laughs> but I just, I just noticed that, and thought it was just kind of, I don't believe that. But interesting little note, I guess. I heard this is uh, 120 years to the mark of the flood, and also man's. Another interpretation is man's life will only be a max of 120 years from now on because of sin. Well, that's baloney too. That's not true. Yeah, I mean, we follow we follow some guys that live beyond 120 years. Well, if we go from this point on, we say that all the people in Genesis five who lived to 900, etc., wouldn't be counted in this if that's what that meant. But if that's what that meant, everybody after this would be counted under that, and they would not live more than 120 years. Noah is 600 years old when the flood comes. He lives 350 more years. That's pretty stinking old. And we can go to uh, Genesis 11. Let's see. Just to go over averages, years old of different people. 500, 403, 403, 430, 209, 207, 200. 119, we're starting to get down finally. 119 was Terah, Abraham's dad, but Abraham lived to 175. That's more than 120. I think Isaac was 160. Uh, close to that, yeah. And Joseph was 130? Yep. Jacob or Joseph, I don't remember which one now. Either way, more than 120. It's not a limit on uh, their, their years. I do think it was saying that man overall is going to start dwindling down. If you do the calculations there throughout the generations, every group of three, the average cuts by a third. And whatever that number ends up with as an average for the next group of three they cut down by a third again right. so uh you wanted to go backwards is that what you wanted to yeah sit on hitting on verse three. Oh, we kind of verse four um that's pretty much what we all talked about the last hour um you know verse five the lord saw the wickedness of man that was great uh in the earth and every intention so here we find out that God knows the intentions of the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we find out more about God as we continually read. So God knows the heart. Um, the Lord regretted that he made man on earth, which kind of is a terrible verse. Um, and it grieves him to his heart. So we, again, we see a revelation of God that he can be grieved. He hurts. Um, so. Uh, 
verse 7, I thought was kind of interesting. It reminded me of Revelation, where he talked about that he will blot out the man whom he created from the face of the land um, about judgment mm-hmm. and saving Noah because he found favor. And it made me think of Revelation, where God blots out men who um, aren't saved, aren't on the ark, who don't find favor with God. He'll blot their name out yeah. of the book of life. So. Uh, just a little thought there. Um, any any thoughts in verses five through eight? Uh, yeah, but they're far fetched, and I wasn't going to go into them. <laughs> 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 I was wondering. I've got a ton of note, uh, cross reference notes right here, marked all around it, but there's not something I had went into. Uh, I spent most of my time looking at what we've already discussed here. I do want to go back and look at uh, the New Testament mentions of the phrase son of God, sons of God, plural. Just to show, plus I also have stuff here about Anakim and the different giant races. So let's see, the New Testament, sons of God. We saw right there in the uh, Old Testament, the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament refers to Elohim. Never, never mentions itself over to humanity. In the New Testament, I saw that it's always mentioned with humanity or in reference to us. Uh, Matthew 5, 9, which is in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed at, uh, at, there's another uh, autocorrect typo, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Luke twenty thirty six, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. This is... I'm probably thinking in context, this is when they, the Pharisees questioned Jesus about the woman that had seven husbands. Um, but they cannot die anymore. They are equal to angels and are sons of God, which means whoever the they is that he's referring to are sons of God, and they're not angels. So, so they're referring to us in that one. Romans eight fourteen and 19. Those led by the Spirit are sons of God, and the creation eagerly awaits their revealing. Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, which is, of course, again, referring to us. Uh, Let's see. Here's my kind of closing notes on that. I don't think. Yeah, I don't want to read those again. You've already heard it all. so after Numbers 13, 32, and 33, we didn't actually read that. But that's when jo- uh, Moses sends in Joshua and Caleb and the other ten spies. By the way, can you name any of the other ten spies? There you go. <laughs> I was shaking my head no. <laughs> uh, after the spies come back from, the, from surveying the promised land, they speak to the people about what they saw. And quoting them, they say, All the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who comes from the Nephilim. Anak comes from the Nephilim. And we uh, seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So uh, the ne- the Anak, which they saw in the land when they viewed it, are from the Nephilim, and they are tall. If you do a, uh, a search for the, the word in, in Hebrew, in a modern Hebrew dictionary, You'll basically see that it either means necklace or neck. But doing a little bit of research with them, you'll come across the fact they were 
supposedly they were long necks, very tall because they had long necks. So the Anak were a neck, long neck people. Doing some study on giants or just looking through some different races and different things that are in the Bible, giants, Nephilim, and Rephaim races. The first one is the Amorites, which the Amorites are not presented this way without really looking for it. I did find some Amorite kings who are said to be Rephaim. Some of them are not. They're just Amorite blood. But uh, one thing when I was doing some looking around with this, uh, I had pointed Mark recently to Derek Gilbert, who was on a about a two-hour podcast on Canary Cry Radio. He talks about this a great deal. He did some neat linking with the Amorite king lines, basically showing them everywhere. But he says, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting, there is a whole, in archaeology world, there is a whole subculture of Amorite study. So, uh, but as far as the Bible goes, Genesis 14, 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshel, or Eshkol, and Aner. These were allies of Abram. So this Genesis 14 situation is set when the four kings from, if you, if you look, look on a map, basically you're going to be seeing them come from, uh, where is it? I said 14, I'm looking at 11. The king of Shinard, king of Elisard, king of Elam. Elam is near Persia, which is Iran. And the king of Goyim, which is plural for nations. But these basically are all nations over towards where Tigris and Euphrates would come down and meet together near Baghdad, near uh, what we, where we know is the outlet. They would you know, reach the uh, sea there at the bottom of, or the southern side of Iraq. They are coming over to Canaan. And they're attacking the king of Sodom, king of Gomorrah, king of Adma, Zeboim, and Zor. Uh, they joined forces in the valley of Sidim, which is the Salt Sea. So we see them all coming from the east, four kings, gathering together and fighting five kings in Canaan. While they're doing that, it's, uh, let's see, I guess I'll end up coming across some of this in my notes right here anyway. So as they they come through an attack over here in Canaan, somebody this is the verse I just read. Then one who had escaped came and told Abraham, uh, who was living by Mamre the Amorite. So Mamre has two son, uh, two brothers. They were all allies of Abraham. Uh, let's see. They helped him retrieve Lot and his family after the four kings made war on the five kings. They made war on the the uh, five kings. Uh, let's see, refer to the, I'm getting to the Raphaim. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, in the following chapter, God tells Abram that his descendants will be slaves in a foreign land and return to Canaan later. What is that hinge on? Uh, let's see, Genesis 15, 16. And they, that being Abraham's or Abram's uh, descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Out of all the groups that God could choose to tell Abram that he is waiting on their sin to max out and complete, he chooses the word Amorites. Um, the Lord made a, cover with, a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kedmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, 
the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gilgashites, and the Jebusites. So you see the Amorites are in there, Hittites are in there, uh, Rephaim are in there, the Ref and the Canaanites, that kind of sweeps up a ton of names right there. But the Rephaim are the ones we're fixing to head towards because the Rephaim, through many, many cultures and, other, and some of their writings, are uh, noted as being giants, also in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 14, 5, this is the, okay, here's the account of the kings. I should have just kept reading. <laughs> Genesis 14, 5, in the 14th year of Kedar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zumim in Ham, the Emim in Shavekiriathim. Now, the Rephaim we know are giants. The Emim, we'll get to in a moment, we know they're giants. I'm thinking the Zumim or the Zamzumim, they would also be giants. So all these kings from the Babylon area are coming over to Canaan fighting uh, Nephilim or giant cultures. Continuing on, they also fought the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they came back or they turned back and came to En Mishpat, with, uh, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the hill country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. So, uh, I mean, at this point, with that right there, I can't say uh, Amalekites, Horites, and Amorites are giants, but they are coming through the land fighting a bunch of giant cultures. This is Deuteronomy 2, 9. The Lord said to me, Moses speaking, I have given our to the people of Lot for possession. And this is long after Lot's descendants. This would be after Lot and his wife left Sodom and Gomorrah and his two daughters had uh, children by him. I don't remember if this is Moab. I think this is Moab right here from his oldest daughter. Either way, I have given our to the people of Lot for a possession. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they, that's the Emim, are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. So Emim is a uh, Moabite word for Rephaim, giants. The territory, and this skips to Deuteronomy 2, verse 19, the territory of the people of Ammon I have given to Lot. So he's saying these two different places I have given to, to Lot also. Uh, Ammon, I think those are the descendants of Benamin, Benami. What was Lot's other son's name? Benami. That was close. The Ammonites come from Ben-Ami. Ben is son. Am is mother or people. Ami, my people, the son of my people. So Moab is the son of father, and Ben-Ami is the son of my people. These became the Moabites and the Ammonites. So right here in Deuteronomy 2, God is telling Moses, I gave this area to Lot, and I gave this area over here to Lot. Uh, that's Deuteronomy 2, 9, 10, and 11. And then we skipped to verse 19 and 20. Verse 20 says, It is counted as a land of Rephaim. Referring back to Ammon. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumin. So the Ammonites called them Zamzumin. 
The Moabites called them Emim, but they're basically all giants. A people great and many as tall as the Anakim, rise up. I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his land. So let's see. The two kings, Sihon of Heshbon and Og of Bashan, are grouped together as two kings of the Amorites in Deuteronomy 3.8. These are the two kings that uh, Moses came through. He could not cross over the Jordan, but he did conquer two main kings on the east side of the Jordan. And this is where some of the tribes decided to stay on. But that's Deuteronomy 3.8, where they're grouped together as two kings of the Amorites. Only Og is counted as a Rephaim. Either way, Rephaim was within the Amorite bloodline. Uh, the word Rephaim and Philistines shows up in five verses altogether. Um, just to say that the the Rephaim, we know that uh, Goliath or Goliath was a Philistine giant. We know that he had five brothers. So there's giant blood going on over there too in the Philistines. Philistines, if you look at the, uh, for those of you who have not taking the time to be interested, look at maps. If you look at the Dead Sea in Canaan or the, in the Holy Land, at the Dead Sea under that area and to the right, you're going to see Moab and uh, going up a little bit, you're going to see Amman. Amman is the capital of Jordan now. So you're working your, by then you're on the map, you're working your way all the way up uh, north towards the Sea of Galilee, towards Syria. The Philistines, though, are all the way to the east side of uh, Israel or the Holy Land near the sea of the Mediterranean Sea. So Rephaim blood everywhere all over that area. A couple of mentions of Og, the king of Bashan, Joshua 12, 4, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the uh, remnant of the Rephaim who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edre, two different places here. And he ruled over Mount Hermon. I had come across some study with holy mountains. I haven't done this study myself, so I'm not going to pitch any of that. Some of the, some of the studies have said basically Mount Hermon was a holy mountain to God, Yahweh God. And some of the, if you look in the back of your Bible, you'll see some of the, the maps that will mark where events in Jesus' life happened. One of the things they point out is that we think the transfiguration of Jesus happened on Mount Hermon. Technically, the word the, na the name Mount Hermon or the word Hermon doesn't show up in the New Testament, so I don't. There's no real proof for that, in my opinion. I haven't come across it myself. Let's see the Anakim. Who are the Anakim? What I learned about them, I learned from studying in Joshua 14, uh, because Caleb comes to Joshua and says, uh, "Moses said I can have wherever my foot landed, wherever I walked, I could choose what I wanted, and I'm choosing this area," and. Uh, Let's see, from my stand, verse 14. You find out in that study that Arba was the father of Anak. He is designated as being for sure the greatest among the Anakim in Joshua 14, 15. He is from a giant race. The Anakim are a giant race. So Arba, who is the father of Anak, he's the father of a giant race. Most likely himself is, is, an, is a giant also. Yeah. Uh, Kiryath Arba, Kiryath means town, Arba is this man's name, but I did a little study in that while I was at it that possibly Arba, being a, a man, having a son, says, oh, this is my son. Well, it only gets worse with grandparents who say, oh, I got grandchildren. So he had three main grandchildren. 
his son and his three grandchildren are mentioned multiple times, but always together. Uh, let's see. Uh, Achiman, Shishai, and Talmai. Those are the sons of Anak. Or excuse me. Yeah, those sons of Anak, who is the son of Arba. So if, if it is called the town of Arba, it's either called the town of Arba, as in the town of this man, or it's called the town of the four, because they were designated separately. For some reason, all three sons are mentioned whenever they're mentioned, and their father, Anak. So it, Arba is the regular uh, Hebrew word for four. So it's the town of four. Arba, Kiriath Arba, is also Hebron. It was later named Hebron. Hebron is where uh, Abraham was buried. Who else was it? Abraham, Itzhak, Sarah. Joseph, I think, was brought back and buried there. Jacob, I th- Jacob was buried there. Joseph is suggested, I believe. Either way, if you look at it, and you're only counting men, as in patriarchs, there are four main Jewish patriarchs buried at Hebron. Caleb comes to Joshua and says, I want Hebron. I want the town of the four. Those four patriarchs that are so important to our culture, that lineage that we come from, I want that town. Uh, just some possible different interpretations of why it has that name. Let's see. Joshua eleven twenty two. There are none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of the Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod are where a bunch of Philistines lived. The Anakim are still there. Time of Joshua. So by the time of David, they're still there. Goliath. Right. Goliath of Gath. Right. So let's see. Uh, sons of Anak just said all that. Emim and Zamzumim, just to say it again. Uh, I put in my notes, refer to the Rephaim above because we already covered that the Moabite word for the Rephaim is Emim. The Ammonite word for the Rephaim is Zamzumim. Bam, I'm done. <laughs> A lot of interesting stuff right here in this, this one little eight verses. We didn't even get into it, though, on looking at actual, you know, breaking down words within this. I, I think it's an interesting phrase, and I don't have a satisfactory, not in my own, in my own self, a satisfactory look at uh, my spirit will not dwell with man or dwell in man, depending on what translation. The Hebrew says, ba'adam, which is in man. But... There's there's no uh, word there for dwell. It's Dean. It's the same we get the word Dan from, or the name Dan, which means like Daniel. God is my judge. It means judge. So, Lo Yodin, or it's also related to uh, Adonai, which is Lord. So I will not lord lord in man, or I will not judge in man. One of the translations uh, Strong's gives for Dean is to plead or contend. I will not, I, basically, I'm not going to keep dealing with man. That's kind of kind of a neat thing to, to see there. But Thanks for listening to the Two Spies podcast with David and Mark. Don't forget to check out twospies.net for daily devotionals, writings on various topics, and separate Bible studies. Help us out by subscribing to the podcast, write a review on iTunes, and spread the word.